Well, it's good to be back with you in the worship of God. If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, I invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15. Pastors Richard and Doug have started their series on 2 Peter, and we are continuing this morning in uh, our series on Romans. Uh, quickly coming to an end with only two more sermons left. We've been going a chapter a week uh, through this book, and here Paul is finishing up, if you've been with us, he, he is finishing up what we saw in chapter 14, his teachings on the relationship, the, the need for love and fellowship between those that are weak and immature in their faith and those that are strong in their faith. And beginning about halfway through this chapter, Paul begins his closing, leaving uh, a closing of a letter that is about a chapter and a half long. And if that seems long to you as a closing for a letter, first of all, remember that this is one of his longest letters, but also it will hopefully help you not feel so bad about um, the pastor who says in closing and then talks for another 20 minutes. Now you'll know he's just being apostolic. So let's begin looking this morning at Romans chapter 15, follow along as I begin reading at verse 1. Paul says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, and through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accordance with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. As it is written, Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing your name. And again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extort him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. He who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. I, am, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all the knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand." This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you, once I have enjoyed your company for a while. 
At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For the Gentiles have come to share their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what I have collected, what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessings of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. And amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Paul ends his teaching uh, here about halfway through on the Christian life. If you remember, began all the way at chapter 12. He, he kind of unfolded in chapters 1 through 11 the mercies of God, the, the gospel of God. And, and though he had some, some specific application that was wedged in there, it was largely a massive um, encouragement of, of summary of what God has done for us in Christ. And then in chapter 12, he said, for those who have believed in Christ, for those that have trusted in his name, for those that claim to be his disciples, this is how you ought to live. And he began in chapter 12 saying, all of life is lived as an act of worship to God. And he unfolded what that looked like in terms of relationships and in terms of uh, relating to a government authority. And then in chapter 14, uh, 14, how we relate to one another, particularly in matters of dispute. And so now, as we think about him wrapping up that section on the Christian life, living together as God's people, and his common concern that we have, or Paul has, and the Romans have for the spread of the gospel, what binds these sections together is this idea of partnership, the partnership of God's people. And specifically here, we see that we are to be partnering for two things. First of all, we need to be partnering in spiritual growth. We need to be partnering in spiritual growth. We see this in verses 1 through 6. Spiritual growth may look like many things, but here Paul is once again, finishing up, talking about the relationship between the weak and the strong. Chapter 15 actually has a, a bad uh, chapter break. We remember that uh, Paul didn't write in verses and chapters. He just wrote a big, long letter. Uh, and someone else later came along for the sake of study and ease of navigating the New Testament, broke it up. And really, um, the, the chapter break should have come at about verse 6 because everything in these verses goes with chapter 14. He talks about the weak, those that are immature in their faith, particularly those here that believe they still needed to keep some of the old covenant laws, laws that had been fulfilled in Christ. Uh, things like only eating certain kinds of foods and observing certain days as Sabbath days. And what Paul says is those of you that are strong, those of you that know such things are fulfilled in Christ and are unnecessary now, you've got to love and be patient and kind with those that are weak. And you who are weak... You do not think of those that are strong as liberal and look down your nose on them as if somehow uh, they aren't godly, but rather we need to tolerate one another on these matters of indifference of opinion. There's always the potential for these secondary and even third level things to stifle unity and maturity in God's people. But that's the opposite of what we need to be aiming for. We need to be aiming for a partnership that leads to spiritual growth. How do we do that? Paul gives us uh, three directions. First, we need to recognize our obligation. 
We need to recognize our obligation. Paul says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. But while as in chapter 14, he really looked at both the weak and the strong here, he is ending with this, with this strong statement, this putting the weight of the responsibility of the relationship on the strong, saying that we have an obligation to the spiritual well-being of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Therefore, we need to be able to bear with the weak. More than that, we have an obligation to them, an obligation to bear with them. That, that phrase, bear with them, speaks of carrying one's burden. So you, you see someone with you know, a big box of books or, or, or something, you go up and say, hey, can I help you carry that? Generally speaking, the kind of burdens that we help one another bear are tend to be more spiritual in nature. They tend to be emotional burdens, difficulties that we have. Here, it's about the spiritual immaturity of others. And Paul says the strong is not meant to mock or condemn or ignore those that are weak. Instead, they're specifically to observe them, come alongside them, and help them pursue spiritual maturity. In other words, rather than just pleasing ourselves, doing what is easiest, doing what is most convenient, doing what is best for me, we are to have our eyes on edifying one another. We have our eyes of partnering with, with those around us. Right now, a couple of my kids are on a Simon and Garfunkel kick, so we've been listening to different songs in the car, and uh, w- one of the songs is, has this amazing statement that pretty much captures much of uh, American culture still even today, some 60 years since it was originally written. That this idea of not needing anyone, of being self-sufficient, of having the walls up and not letting anybody in, of being a rock and an island to all those around. But the Christian life is the exact opposite of that. First of all, we need help. And sometimes sometimes it, it is our, it, it, part of our struggle to say, I don't, I don't want to be around anybody. I want to be alone. And the problem is when we're alone, we get off by ourselves and we think thoughts that are not true. We deceive ourselves, we listen too much to ourselves, and we, and we go off in the weeds emotionally or spiritually. We need the company of God's people, but more than that, on the opposite end. We can't just say, I'm doing fine. Doing fine, I don't need anybody's help. I'm just going to do what's best for me. No, no, no. We're going to be looking at those that are needy around us and seeking to invest in them. God's people are inherently an others-centered kind of people. But that's hard for us, isn't it? It's hard for us to, uh, to think about putting ourselves and our priorities and our preferences on the back burner and seeking to serve and help those around us. After all, it costs us money sometimes. It costs us time. It costs us the ability to give up things that we would rather be doing and be inconvenienced. But that's exactly what God calls us to do. And he's, Paul here seeks to give us some good motivation to do that, which we often find difficult. As we remember our obligation, we ought to be encouraged by remembering Christ's own example. That's the second direction he gives as we partner together for spiritual maturity. We remember Christ's example. Don't please yourselves. Please others for their edification. Why? For Christ did not please himself, verse 3. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. So Paul points us to Christ, and as the basis for doing that, he quotes from Psalm 69. And from our kind of, um, you know, started and then stopped series in the Psalms a while back, you know that all of the Psalms in some way, like all of Scripture, point us to Christ. But Psalm 69 is one of those that most clearly points to Jesus and what his life was going to be like and is often quoted in the New Testament. 
Specifically, Psalm 69 points to the suffering and the self-denial that Jesus went through during the week of his passion. It's looking forward to his death being marked by slander and ridicule. And Paul says, listen, when you're thinking about giving up things for your own sake and living for the sake of others, look to Jesus and remember what he endured. Why did he endure slander and ridicule? Well, of course, he did it first of all because he came as the promised Messiah to bear the reproach of his people. He came to take upon himself the condemnation that we deserve for our sins. All of us have come into this world at enmity with God. We think that we are in charge. We want to do things our way rather than what God says. And as a result, we deserve judgment. But God in His infinite love, even for sinners, for rebels, sent Christ to come into the world and to bear our judgment, our punishment for us on the cross so that we might be reconciled to God when we put our faith in Him. But more than that, here, Paul says that Jesus endured the slanderous reproaches that were offered against God the Father. He was willing to suffer scorn for the sake of the honoring of His Father. And so Paul furthers that argument by saying, listen, remember Christ. Why? Because remember that whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Now, there is a lot in that verse that could really probably sustain the weight of an entire sermon, but here's the point that he's making. The Old Testament looked forward to and was fulfilled in Christ, right? Sometimes it is in specific prophecies. Sometimes it is simply Jesus coming and doing better what those before him could not do. So, so Israel is redeemed out of bondage in Egypt, right? That they are given the opportunity to worship God. They are tested in the wilderness and they fail. Jesus is forced to flee to Egypt with his family as a child because of the threat of death from Herod. He comes out of Egypt. He, raise, he raises up as a child into a man seeking God. And then he goes into the wilderness for 40 days to be tested and comes out victorious. God says, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Israel in the Old Testament was his beloved son, but he was not well pleased with him because they rejected him. They failed to be obedient to him. And so just as the Old Testament is anticipated and fulfilled in Christ, so also the work of Christ is a model for us. We don't merely follow Jesus' example as if somehow being good like he was, being faithful like he was, saves us. No, we are saved, we are reconciled to God through faith in his unique saving work. But at the same time, our relationship with Christ isn't in there. We look to him in faith, but then we also follow him as our example, as one who was faithful. He becomes a model for us. And so what Paul says is, through Christ then, the pattern that we see in the Old Testament is also a pattern for us, for our instruction and our encouragement. And here specifically, he says, the unity and the fellowship of Gentiles together in the church anticipates the hope of glory that is going to be realized fully. The work of Christ becomes the basis for the encouragement and the endurance despite the difficulty that we see now and the unity and fellowship among the church. And so all of this informs Paul's prayers. You notice there's three benedictions, three kind of uh, prayer wishes that Paul has for the Romans here. The first one shows up in verses 5 through 6. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus. Why? That together 
you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, don't miss the connection here between what Paul has just said and the prayer. He wants God to give the Romans endurance and encouragement. And where do these things come from? According to verse 4, the scriptures. So how does Paul expect his prayer to be fulfilled? How does he expect the Roman believers to endure and to be encouraged they might have hope? By their reading, their meditating, their believing of God's promises in Scripture. When we see the transforming effect that God's Word has in our lives, then we will endure because we will receive encouragement. And that encouragement leads to not just us doing our own thing, but an encouragement towards harmony being unified with one another that is both deeply authentic, we are in one accord, he says, but also openly apparent. It is with one voice that we glorify God. That's the kind of prayer that we should be praying for one another, even as we purpose in our hearts to take practical steps to live it out. Paul's given us a command to be accepting and unified for the sake of edification of spiritual growth, He's given us motivation to do that in Christ, and now he wants to encourage us to live it out by telling us that we ought to rejoice in God's promise. As we partner together for spiritual growth, we can rejoice in God's promise. We see that beginning in verse 7 as Paul returns to his main point. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Now, in, even in this room, some of us come from families that have grown up in other parts of the country, other parts of the state even. Some of us worship different sports teams. All right, we have different preferences on food, right? We have a lot of kind of minor differences. Some of us have different preferences on music. Some of you made that clear. You'd like more of one thing, less of other things. And yet, what do we do? We all tolerate one another, right? We love each other. We, we are willing to be harmonious and unified in our relationship with one another. Imagine the church at Rome. You have people that grew up Jewish, seeking to live not just according to the food laws, not just according to all of the, 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 the feasts and everything else, but a mindset that says we are the chosen people of God and everyone else is our enemy because they don't follow the law and they rebel against God. They're our enemy because they're God's enemy. Some of them might have been genuine believers, People like, uh, people like Simeon and people like uh, Elizabeth and Zechariah that we saw at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke a few years ago. Or they might have been like Paul, prideful, arrogant Pharisees that had no real faith but were trusting themselves right with God. Either way, the Gospel came to them. They repented of their sins. They saw Christ as the Messiah. They believed. And now the Gospel came to the Gentiles as well. And the Gentiles are not just like, well, here's another culture. I mean, you can imagine they're living in Rome, a huge metropolis. All these different people have come from all over the place, these Gentile peoples. They've got their own gods they worship, their own ways that they worship them. They have their own family traditions. And suddenly all these people are thrown together into the church because of their common faith in Jesus Christ. They also were shown their sin. They also saw there's only one true God and they believed. And now suddenly Jews and Gentiles are all together. And even though they have a common faith, they have a lot of differences. And what does Paul say? Welcome one another just as Christ welcomed you. You think all of those differences are important? Consider that you are a rebel deserving of hell, but Christ accepted you. How much more ought you to accept one another now, to welcome one another? And notice why, why that is the case. 
Because God has purposed from the beginning that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. He roots it in the gospel once again. And so as we think about Crossway, not just Crossway, but this is where we're at this morning. So we think about Crossway, every church, what should bind us together, what should bring harmony and unity, not just in terms of love and fellowship, but also ministry and life, is not the kind of schools we send our kids to. It's not this kind of style of music that we enjoy in our worship service. It's not our preference on Bible translation or political party or national citizenship or anything else other than the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ revealed in the good news of the gospel. That, that becomes the centering point by which all of our unity revolves. And if that's true, frankly, we can tolerate quite a bit, quite a bit. God made promises to Israel through the patriarchs, Paul says in verse 8. And so when Jesus became a servant to the circumcised, the Jews, he fulfilled those promises to be the Jewish Messiah. But once again, the vision that God had was bigger than just the Jews. He also came in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. What was the promise to Abraham? Not just, I'm going to bless you and make your name great, but I'm going to bless you so that it, through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. All of the Gentiles, from the beginning, this has been God's plan. The unity of people from every tribe, language, nation, and people through saving faith in Christ has been the grand purpose for which God sent Jesus into the world. And even now, through Paul's ministry, he is fulfilling that purpose, and he's not stopped up until today. And Paul wants to prove his point to the Jewish people to the Jewish believers there in Rome by saying, look, just remember, this is not new theology. I'm not making this up. Even though we couldn't see it because we didn't want to, it was a blind spark. Listen to how clear it was in the Old Testament. So he just piles on from, from every part of the Old Testament. Proof text, as it is written. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people, the Jews. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extort him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. Loved ones, that is God's agenda. That Christ comes to secure what we need to be reconciled to God. And that message goes not just to his old covenant people, but to all peoples. And what is the result? That all of those diverse peoples now become unified. They have one voice to worship and glorify the living God. So this morning you come to this church. What's your agenda? Why are you here? If you're a member, why have you joined if you're developing friendships, what, what is the goal? What is the point? Why are you sitting here this morning? Do you have an agenda? We often say, well, I don't have any agendas. I hope you have an agenda. Your agenda should be God's agenda. The spreading of the gospel to all peoples that together, in one accord, with one voice, we give glory to God through Christ. That's what we're striving for. That's what we're aiming for. And so that's why we don't just stop with spiritual growth for one another. The church is not just a big ingrown toenail that keeps growing inward. We're meant to be growing outward as well. And so we don't just partner for spiritual growth. Paul says that we partner for spreading the gospel. This is the second major point that he makes here in verses 14 through 33. We are partners for spreading the gospel. Now in the rest of this chapter, Paul lays out, as it were, his methodology for mission. And so 
someone tells you this is how we ought to do missions or evangelism, this is how we ought to partner together for churches, and they say, here's this great book to read about it, the first thing you should do is look in the back and see, does it quote scripture? Because it doesn't do us a whole lot of good to come up with all kinds of fancy ideas and plans and strategies if it does not align with the original source, the greatest missionary who ever lived, the Apostle Paul, apart from Jesus, right? So the question is, shouldn't we learn from what Paul says? doesn't mean that we can't think through practically. Nuts. I'm not saying there's no reading for books, obviously. Go, you know, go look at my office. Still got too many. But the point is, those books should be based on what we see here, right? I'll never forget, I was listening to uh, C.J. Mahaney talking about being saved in the Jesus, out of the Jesus movement in the 70s. And uh, they had this uh, great um, kind of basically large Bible study fellowship time. Uh, I think it was on like Tuesday nights or something called Take and Give, which uh, they called it TAG, which seems very 70s, but was also very biblical. The idea of, you, you know, you're not just taking from others, but you're giving as well. And they would sing, they would read scripture, they would pray together. But as he's reading the Bible, he's reading Acts, he's reading the letters, he says, we need more than this. We need an actual church. So they said, we're closing it down. And, and from 3,000 to 30, they started Sovereign Grace Church in Maryland. And, and, and when someone pressed him, well, how did you know how to organize the church? How did you know, you know what kind of ministries they have? And I think he says, I, I read Acts and I read Paul's letters. Wow, that's amazing, right? So what does, Paul, what does Paul show us here? What is the pattern, what should be the pattern for Crossway's involvement in fulfilling the mission of God to draw all people to Christ for the glory of his name? First, we make it our priority to seek Christ's glory. To seek Christ's glory. Verse 14, once again, marks this transition from the big picture that Paul's been laying out now to his specific ministry mindset. He says, remember back in chapter 1, he said, I want to come to you and encourage you by preaching the gospel to you. And he reminds them of that. But he also says, you know, I've been pretty passionate with my instruction. I, I, I spoke vigorously to you, and I want you to know why I did that. It's not because I thought you didn't know anything. It's not because I thought you weren't mature. It's not because I thought I was something special. But I'm so thankful for the grace of Christ and what it has produced in me and among the Gentiles. I'm satisfied about you, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But on some points, I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. Why is he proud? Not because he's been so zealous, not because he's done so much, but because of what Christ has done in him. You know, Melinda and I have... Uh, worked like crazy people, it seems like sometimes, trying to get our house ready to get on the market to be on sale. And to be honest, um, I, I, I can say I, I'm pretty proud of what we got accomplished, particularly if you saw our, if you, you know, those of you in the community group, you saw our house look like before. Not that it was terrible, just uh, now what it looks like, it's like, whoa, uh, a, a lot has changed there. We could go through about uh, drywall repairs and about reorganization and about putting in new light fixtures and painting every single surface in that place, it seemed like. And everything else that was cleaned out and thrown away and whatever. But here's the thing. All of that hard work came as the fruit of the investment of others. Because I don't know how to hang drywall. I don't know how to install light fixtures until somebody showed me. We didn't have all the money to do that. And so family that gave us money or, or, or bought things to, 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 
you know, supplies and whatever else. Friends from, from right here in this church, from the neighborhood that either gave us things or came and gave their time to help us paint and do different things. So yeah, I can say, look at all this work that got done knowing it wasn't just me. It was the fruit of my friendship and the love and affection of family of friends invested into us by which all of that was done. And Paul says the same thing. Listen, he says, I can boast in the spread of the gospel and the fact that, that, that Gentiles are coming into faith because I know it's not me. It's what God has done through me. It's the grace of Christ calling someone who didn't deserve to be an apostle. I was a persecutor, a hater of the church, and God saved me and made me a leader, a missionary, a church planter. But more than that, it was the power of the gospel preached by the, by the power of the Spirit confirming it with signs and wonders that has allowed so many to turn from the worship of idols to worship and serve the living God. So Paul becomes a wonderful example for us today, not least of which touching every aspect of our lives. All of it should be seeking Christ's glory, but specifically as we think about just a church and, and what, kind of, what kind of church we want to be moving into the future. And, and as we continually seek to... to, to dig down and write into our DNA a disciple-making culture that is not just about the nations, but also our neighbors, but not just about our neighbors, but also the nations. And we think about the things we want to do and change and shape. Why are we doing those things? Is it so that we can puff out our chest and say, we're really biblical on how we do church? Is it so we can feel better about ourselves compared to others? who may not do things the, the way that we do. Are we seeking glory for ourselves or glory for Christ? Do we see ourselves as throwing a life preserver to those drowning in sin, bringing light to those in darkness, launching messengers to the furthest reaches of the world, or do we just see ourselves as being able to throw up numbers and look good in front of an association or a convention? Are we seeking the glory of Christ in us and in the world? If that's what's driving us and motivating us, then we're not just going to seek Christ's glory. We're actually going to send workers to the unreached. We're going to send workers to the unreached. This is the second part of Paul's mission strategy. I love this bold statement in verses 19 through 20. From Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. I'm done. I have no more gospel work in those areas. That's a, that's a huge area. Flip that little map in the back of your Bible at some point, and you look about where Jerusalem goes to Lycrium, and he says, I've, I've done it all. No more gospel work. And thus I make it my ambition to preach Christ, not where he's all, or preach the gospel, not where Christ has been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. So what is Paul saying there? He's done. There's no more gospel work. There's no more need for missionaries. There's no more need for evangelizing. He's saying everybody is saved in those areas. No, not at all. In fact, in fact, this whole concept has been very misunderstood uh, and still is in some ways. When I first came here, um, whenever it was, November of 2012, I guess, to interview, I met with Tom Martin, our associational director of, of missions at the time, another pastor, and he was asking for my testimony and different things, trying to get to know me before uh, the, the church actually called me to come. And I talked about being in college and not knowing really if I was going to be going into missions or the pastorate. And, um, and the other pastor that, that was there with us, I didn't know at the time, but he turned his placement over and wrote six million and said, you don't have to go outside of the country to find lost people. Now, I didn't know him at the time, but, but that's not the mindset that we have. There's a difference between saying unreached and unsaved. Paul here is talking about going to those that are unreached. Are the unreached unsaved? Yes, of course the unreached are unsaved. That's why they're unreached. 
But just being unsaved doesn't make you unreached. So are the tri, are there people in the tri-cities unsaved? Heck yeah. Some of them are our neighbors. But are the tri-cities unreached? No, absolutely not. Why? Because we're here. Decades ago, the gospel came and took roots along with several other churches. Some Southern Baptists, some not. So there's a gospel witness. There are churches that can carry out the ministry and mission of the church here in the Tri-Cities. Tri-Cities is not unreached. Michigan is not unreached. United States is not unreached. We have a long history of the church. Does that mean there's not more work to do? Absolutely there's more work to do. It doesn't mean we stop preaching the gospel, but what it means is we begin to see ourselves as a platform, as a launch pad for missions to other places where guess what? There's no church. There's no Bible. Sometimes there's no believers. So that those that are not saved have zero opportunity to become saved. There's no gospel witness there. Those areas, we say, are unreached. So what Paul is saying in these verses is that, yes, there's people still unsaved there, but what, by the grace of God, has happened is that he has gone through from town to town to town to town. He has faithfully preached the gospel. Spirit has given life and faith. Churches have been formed. Leadership has been raised. And now he's done. Those churches that he's planted and left behind, they can continue the ministry in their area. But he is going where Christ has never been named, where no one's ever heard of Jesus Christ. And the best mission missiologies for, for, a, for a, a global impact still look at those kinds of areas, those areas where there's no Christians, there's no church, there's no possibility of salvation, and say those are a high priority. Why? Because they're a high priority for Paul. Paul says, it's great that the church in Rome has the gospel. Now you guys evangelize the city. Do it. But I got to go over here, over in Spain. No one's ever heard of Jesus in Spain. And so the question is, are we prepared not just to give generously, but also to send people out? If we're a healthy church, we will raise up leaders and then be willing to let them go. To send them out that they can go like Paul to the places that are unreached. And once again, when we do send them, then we need to support them. That's the third part of Paul's mission strategy. We support others in missions, support others in missions. Paul says when he finally comes to Rome to visit them, he not only wants to encourage them, but he also expects to be encouraged by them. More than that, he expects that the encouragement will be more than just spiritual, it will be financial. He says because he's going to these unreached areas, he's often been hindered from coming to uh, to them, verse 23, but now since I no longer have any room for work in these regions and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. Although support for gospel workers is never less than encouragement, edification, caring for their souls, the needs of their family, trying to, sink, uh, trying to strengthen their faith, it's got to be more than that too. It can't just be that. Paul expected that stable churches would give financial support to him as an apostle, a church planning missionary who was going out and doing what they could not do, taking the gospel to the unreached. And so those at home with stable lives, with steady jobs, were expected to give generously, sacrificially, joyfully, not just to their own leadership, but to those that were going out from them and doing what they were unable to do. So that they didn't have to worry about how's my family going to eat and, and how am I going to pay for passage on a boat to go across the sea to this other land. No, the church was supporting those people. 
And one of the things I have to say has been most encouraging as a pastor here over the years is the, is the continued push to increase our missions giving. Uh, I'm thankful for Bill Livingston who came in the 70s and said, if we're going to be a Southern Baptist church, we're going to be a Southern Baptist church. And he got our CP giving up to 10%. Most churches don't give 10% anymore. A lot of churches that are a lot bigger than us don't give 10% anymore. My question is, if we're really concerned, not just for our neighbors, but the nations, we have to be giving generously. And Crossway has done that traditionally. We not only give to the CP, we give to the association. We not only give to the association, but over the last few years, Pastor June, me, we've taken on individual missionaries who have a, a, a close association with us. The point is, we are continuing to, to try and increase the amount that we are giving towards missions so that it's not just about us, but it's about the mission of God through all the peoples of the world. Some of you, even beyond what you give through church, but individually support missionaries. What is all that? It's just the normal Christian life. It's what Paul envisions as everyday believers engaged in ministry looks like. So here's the thing. Everybody, everybody is called is expected, should be involved in both evangelism and missions. Evangelism just means sharing the gospel wherever you're at. People next door to you, the people that you work with, people that you are standing in, in line with for an hour at Disney World or the TSA checkpoint now, whatever it is, okay? And you start a gospel conversation. You, you know, you're just, you're just speaking about Christ whenever you have opportunities. You're seeking those things out. Everybody does that, but some people... Some people do that cross-culturally. They learn a different language. They go somewhere else where no one's standing around talking about the gospel yet. So they got to go and do it. And you're supposed to be involved in that too, either by going or giving to those that go. But those are your two options. You either go or you give or you're disobedient. That's what the Bible says. When you, when you take the whole pattern of scripture, especially how Paul envisions the ministry of the local church, and how it's connected to the global mission of God. We go or we give. It's one or the other. There's, there's no third option to do neither. God's people are called to be part of God's global plan. And whether we give, whether we go, either way, Paul says we are always to pray. That's the last crucial step. The last crucial step to his methodology. We strive together in prayer. Remember, in, light, in writing this letter, Paul has shown a concern for Jews and Gentiles believers to be one in Christ, not just in word, not just in theory, but in love and in deed. And that's been his concern even in this chapter. And now he comes and shows that he's been putting that into practical action. You're, if you've read it all, any of Paul's letters, you know it pops up several times. We see it in Acts. There was a famine among the Jew, largely Jewish believers in Jerusalem. And Paul says, you Gentiles have, have shared in the blessings of their Messiah. Therefore, as loving brothers and sisters, we need to support them. And so he goes from city to city, town to town, region to region, church to church, takes up a special offering to come and offer this massive assistance to those that are there. And he says... This is why I'm not coming to you now, verse 25, I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. So what does Paul ask them to pray for? Success in his plans, not only to arrive safely with the offering, but that it's going to be well received by the Jewish church and so bring unity between Jews and Gentiles. Pray that I may del be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea. They're always on his back, angry that he's seemingly a heretic now. And pray that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. 
so that by God's will I may come to you then and be ref- with, with joy and be refreshed in your company. What's the basis for his request? He says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit. That's the basis. We have a unique connection now because we have a common faith and serve a common Lord for a common mission. More than that now, because of the the Spirit of Christ poured into our hearts, we love one another. And because you love me and I love you, pray for me. Pray for me. What does that prayer look like? It looks like hard work. He says, I appeal to you, strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. This is not a kind of, well, when I think about it, I'm going to pray for you kind of prayer. The word striving references back to Jacob wrestling with the Lord all night at Bethel. It's the kind of prayer, as one author says, involves discipline, energy, and earnestness. Praying for the success of church ministry and church missions isn't meant to be a half-hearted affair. Why? Because half-hearted prayer shows we believe one of two things. Either God's not going to answer or we can do it by ourselves. Neither one is a God-honoring thought. And so if we're going to follow the advice of the missionary William Carey who broke out of the stodgy, missionless thinking of the day to advance the gospel of India and who said expect great things from God, attempt great things for God, then we're going to have to make prayer serious business before God. Just a few years ago, a man in Australia named John Chapman died, and though over here it barely made a ripple, and across Australia it was a big deal. Affectionately known as Chapo, he was a well-known evangelist in the Anglican church down there, traveled all around the, the continent as well as you know, the UK, and um, I knew about him probably about the time I was starting ministry here and bought his book on preaching called Setting Hearts on Fire. Hopefully it had some effect over the last 13 years, I don't know. But what was most encouraging to me was to see this guy who had lived out his life as a self-proclaimed evangelist from youth to churches to prisons all over the place. And when he was old enough that he could not keep up with full-time ministry more, he retired into a retirement home. And guess what he did? He continued evangelizing. And so when people that knew him and loved him would go and visit him, he would never be found in his room that will be found in the hallways, in the rooms of others, even as he was undergoing cancer treatment, carrying his IV bag around, telling people about the love of God through Jesus Christ, that they might be reconciled to him despite their sin. I really believe that if we are sincere in our own faith and confidence that the gospel is the saving message of God for all the nations be brought together in the worship of the one true God, then that's the kind of lifestyle, that's the kind of mindset that we'll dedicate our lives to. And we'll do it not just by ourselves, but by partnering together as God's people. Father, that's our prayer this morning, that we would see the obligation that we have and not feel it as a difficult weight, but as the natural extension of our life together in Christ. Because we have received grace how much more ought we to show love and grace towards others? Not just those together who may disagree with us on secondary matters, but to those that are lost and need to hear of Christ. So Father, we pray, God, both for spiritual growth and for the spread of the gospel. Father, help us at Crossway. Help us wherever we're at to be deep and loving partners as your people. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.